Well, good morning, beloved. If you are so able, please turn to your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be examining verses 22 to 27. Please do stand when you have that for the reading of God's word. Hear ye this morning the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let us pray. Sovereign God, we come before you knowing that you are the true and only King of kings and Lord of lords to whom we bow and bring true and humble submission to. We ask God that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning, that it would go forth in power and authority, and that it would be uh, received by receptive ears and hearts on good soil, that the seed may grow and prosper and reap forth the blessing of eternal life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Boy, this is one of those fun sermons where uh, it can be a challenge, especially in the day and culture that we live in, to preach such a message as this. Uh, the temptation of this message, I'm going to speak to the brothers, uh, is that uh, when we read a verse like we just did, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know, I don't want to see any elbows going like this to the wives from the husband saying, you hear that, honey? You hear what the pastor just said? Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, and then likewise in verse 25 when it says, husband, love your wives. I don't want to see any of the women shoving their elbows into their husbands saying, you hear that, honey? Pastor said that. And uh, the reality is that there's a message here for both sexes, for male and female, for those who are married, for those who are not married. This is a message that is for you, that will bless you, that will encourage you, and that will lead you into the right way of understanding the uh, beauty that God has made and ordained for us in holy matrimony. There's a beautiful message here. And in reality, what we see in these verses of Scripture is a glorious presentation of the gospel. But I want to put this out there before we go any further into the text. I want you to understand this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we have the triune God saying, let us make man in our image. God creates in that perfect garden, male and female. God had spoken his word into the cosmos, and he says, let us make man in our image. And then the result of that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, is that the, the, Moses says under divine inspiration, and then he made them male and female in his image, in his likeness. 
brothers and sisters, both male and female are equally made in the glorious image of God. There is no distinction between the male and the female in regard to their humanity and the shared image that they have received from their maker, from the creator. We are indeed, as the Apostle Paul expresses so beautifully in Galatians 3.28, there is no slave or free man. There is no Greek or Jew. There is no barbarian or Scythian. There's no male or female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. Meaning that the barriers between us, whether it be race, whether it be the skin tone, whether it be our sexual organs, all those things break down into the unity of Christ. Because on that great day, when we are presented to Christ, guess what? We will be that bride. We will be this singular bride that comes before the Lord, holy, spotless, and blameless before our Savior. Therefore, I want you to write this in if you're following along. Men and women are equally made in the image of God. So there is no distinction in terms of human dignity and worth when we're talking about the sexes. It's not that, that man is more so in a particularly ontological way uh, uh, made in God's image. It's not in the text of Genesis chapter 1. We don't see that in Galatians chapter 3 yet. What we see is this oneness of humanity, both in the garden. God, made, God said, let us make man our image, and then he made man in his image, both male and female. And then, by the Apostle Paul's words, that we are all one in Christ. There is a unity that is shared amongst male and female in their connectedness to the Creator and their relationship with Christ. But there is an order. So I, I have to admit that I, I speak on this subject with great humility because the subject that we are approaching this morning is one of great significance. It's one of marriage. Uh, a couple of years ago, so I'll, I'll be honest with you, this is my third time preaching through the book of Ephesians. And I've preached it in Canada. I've preached it in the last church. I just love the book of Ephesians, and, and I think it's a great, probably one of the most brilliant uh, pieces of work in the world. Uh, and I preached this sermon, uh, a similar sermon to this, twice before. And uh, in Wisconsin, when I preached this message, uh, I had a sister who was very strongly opinionated on many things. And she came up to me after the message. She's like, you know, you shouldn't even preach these verses. You are too young. Who are you to tell me about life? Who are you to tell me about marriage? I was a little bit younger back then. And but now I'm, I'm, I'm in my 30s, so I, I will not tolerate that uh, from you guys. <laughs> I've lived a little bit of life now. Uh, this weekend, it will be 11 years of marriage of me and my beloved. And so I think I can speak a little bit into this topic. And I can speak a little bit uh, from my perspective as a person who's been married for 11 years, but also as a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Know this, that uh, there is a, a great power to understanding these verses of Scripture that can bless your life, that can bless your marriage, that can bless your family, bless your relationships. And there's a sacred mystery involved in all of this that I want you to comprehend with me this morning, if not only by the power of the Spirit working in us. But I speak with humility, but I also want to tell you that I speak with great authority on this. 
Not because I've been married for 11 years, not because of my position as a pastor, but because the words that I speak are not my own, but they're from God's word. And God's word is the authority. God's word has the final say in all matters, especially dealing with our relationships to God and to one another. And no greater relationship can one experience in this life, apart from the relationship that we have with the Lord, than the relationship that you and I will have with our spouse. Therefore, with great humility, but with great authority, I present to you this message of submission to Christ in marriage. The order of creation and the family unit itself has been trampled on in today's society. In today's modern world, we see that all the gender roles and all the, 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 the beautiful complexities that come with life and marriage have been under assault by a postmodern, egalitarian, and feminist movement that has taken over our country since the 1960s. We see again that uh, these roles of men and women in our postmodern context have been to undo the biblical roles of male and female and to usurp the structure and the sanctity of the family unit itself. You know, there's two views, predominant views in Christendom when it comes to the relationship of male and females. One is an egalitarian view, which is a worldly perspective, which essentially says, uh, they, they take the first part of what I said, yes, male and female, we're equal. Therefore, we're all one. Therefore, there's no distinctions. And because there's no distinctions, a woman can take on the roles of a man, and the man can take on the roles of a woman. And this egalitarianism that has in, uh, infiltrated even the church uh, does away with uh, biblical authority and biblical headship and this is why we see even within evangelicalism what is supposed to be the conservative wing of Christendom at least here in America you have women pastors women who believe that it is their their right to be in the pulpit and to deliver uh, God's word and to shepherd a people when God's word specifically tells us the qualifications of an elder the qualifications of a pastor and that is a role particularly specifically for qualified men and so egalitarianism begins to uh, blur the lines between male and female and because we're all one because we're all equally made in God's image, therefore we can equally share in these roles with very little distinction, if any. I would submit to you that that is not the biblical worldview. And that is not what the Bible teaches in regard to the roles of male and female. Instead, I would hold on to what is called a complementarian view that affirms, again, the uniqueness of male and females being made in God's image equally, all having been made one in the body of Christ under the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet being distinction, there being distinctions within the roles of men and women. Regardless of what the world says, men cannot get pregnant. Regardless of what they say. Men do not have the appropriate parts. It is not how God designed this. It is not what God intended for men. But instead, women have been blessed with such a beautiful gift 
to be able to, to procreate in their womb, to hold and, and have a child develop in them and then deliver that child into the world, to nurture it, to bless it, to teach it. And the role of the man is to be a protector, to be a provider, and of course in also be a, a, a nurturing father figure. We're not talking about these uh, uh, gender roles in that uh, uh, they are uh, completely exclusive in regard to uh, the mom always has to be the nice sweet one and then the dad's always a cold distant dad who just provides. That's not what I'm talking about. But instead what we see in the culture is this breakdown of the nuclear family, this breakdown of gender roles, this breakdown of the family unit. And it stems from an egalitarian perspective. And even beyond just the egalitarianism and the complementarianism and the views that we've laid out before you this morning, what's really at stake here is the gospel. What really is at stake here is addressing sin and finding our solution to sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because it is God himself who has established through creation and through his word the proper roles for men and women. This is now where we find ourselves in God's word. We see in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, after delivering a word of, of walking in the newness of life as Christians, he says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, and that's not just something that we do within the church context. This is a submission out of reverence that we do in all relationships specifically in the ones that Paul are gonna, is going to lay out right now in verses 22 and 25, when he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I want to admit that this, is a, this can be a potentially dangerous text, in that this is a text that can be easily, when understood and read only in a vacuum, misapplied and be even harmful to people. Why? Because the way in which wives submit to their husbands, according to Scripture, is what we see in verse 21, one out of reverence for Christ. Now, are husbands worthy of their wives' submission? I would present to you and say that yes. But we know we live in a fallen world where there are men who can be abusive, men who can be cold and hard and distant, and yet, uh, even the, an unbelieving spouse is worthy of submission. And so how do we square these things, these, these real-life examples of life where, where sometimes there's even abuse in a marriage between the husband and the wife, and, and how do we square this with God's word saying, wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord? Well, I believe this, that submission, which is the key word here, to submit is a really ugly word in our culture today. Don't you agree? Think about that word and the connotation that it has, especially amongst young people. Uh, if you bring this into the modern world and you say, and you bring this before a modern couple and you talk about gender roles and you say it is a wife's duty to submit to your husband, the woman would likely scoff, laugh, and say, yeah, right. And in fact, I know this because I have brought this up in many modern contexts and have gotten that very same response. There's something that has happened and shifted in our world since the 1960s. 
The culture has celebrated independence from authority, resulting in a generation who rejects godly submission. And, and what has that resulted in? What's been a fruit of this venture since the sexual revolution, uh, revolution in, the, in the 60s and 70s? Nothing less than the breakdown of the nuclear family, where divorce rates have now skyrocketed over 50% in America, where a majority, for the first time in history, we're seeing uh, a, a, a huge shift in the demographics, where somewhere north of 30% of households are now um, run by single mothers. We've also seen an increase in sexual morality along with all kinds of societal woes that stem from unfettered sexual supremacy in the culture. Notice the spread of all sorts of sicknesses and diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. You see monkeypox in the news. These are all things that are a result of a broken, fallen world and a, and a sinful course of action that has divorced sexuality, gender roles, from their proper place as God has ordained them. And yet, we know that there is an opposer, there's Satan the devil, who is our opposer, who did not submit to God and has sown his seeds of rebellion all over our land. Yet, the answer to this, the answer that we must um, come to, is godly submission. Godly submission. Submission, first and foremost, to Christ, who is indeed Lord. Last week we talked about submitting to Christ and the, the supremacy of Christ's lordship. Jesus Christ is indeed Lord of lords and King of kings, and we must submit to him. And in submitting to him, we find our submission to one another in the context of the church, the context of God's people. But we also see even more importantly, or just as importantly, Submission in the family. Because the family is sacred. I know the world doesn't think so anymore. The world has, has rejected traditional family norms. And again, what has that resulted in? A world filled with even more chaos. As the nuclear family begins to break down in this country, so will our institutions. It's no wonder why institutional trusts are at all-time low in this country. This is not something that is just new or has just developed recently. This has been a trend for the last 70 years in this country. Godliness and godly submission produces working, blessed, efficient, happy families and homes. You see, this is not about the subjection of women or setting women back, as many women would accuse, a message of like, like this or words like this to, to presume. But instead, this is for the true liberation of the sexes. To embrace the call of God and the submission that leads to freeness in Christ. I want you, if you can, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter gives an, an, uh, a word, admonition to those who are married, a very timely word. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Likewise, wives, 
be subject to your own husbands. Very similar admonition that Paul gives the churches in Ephesus. So that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Notice what is at play here. Notice what's at stake in terms of godly submission and submission to one another in the context of marriage. Nothing less than the gospel. It's the gospel. Wives are to submit to their husbands, even if they're unbelievers. Why? So that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. You know, maybe some of you guys have read a book, The Case for Christ. Uh, the Case for Christ was a book written by Lee Strobel, who was an uh, independent journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, he got married to the love of his, of, his, of his wife, but he was an atheist, and his wife was an atheist too. Shortly after the marriage, the wife began attending church and became a Christian. And this frustrated and angered Lee Strobel so much uh, that he could not believe that his wife would betray him, that she would become a Christian of all things. When that wasn't what he signed up for. He didn't sign up to marry a woman like that. He didn't sign up to marry, you know, a, a Christian woman. But what resulted was that as his wife continued to learn and grow in Christ, she began to change. Her life began to be a living testimony. And so much so that Lee Strobel became inquisitive to her Christian faith. And even though he was treating her not very well, she maintained a godly stance of submission and of love and faithfulness to her husband. And what resulted from that is that Lee Strobel then goes and does uh, an investigative work to find out if Christianity could be true. And that resulted in the testimony that he gave in the case for Christ where he himself also became a Christian and had submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now their marriage is whole in Jesus. So if you're following along in the teaching, godly submission in marriage honors God and can win unbelieving spouses. How do they win unbelieving spouses? Well, it says in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You see, when you come to faith in Jesus, Jesus changes you from the inside out. He does not leave you the way he found you. And he will begin to change you, your heart, your desires, your, the way that you present yourself, the way that you live. And you begin to have a life of respectful and beautiful purity. And so it is by pure conduct. You can write that in as well. Godly submission produces fruit. And of that fruit can be even the winning over of unbelieving spouses by the pure conduct. Now, this is a challenge for not only women, but also for men. There are many men who also have unbelieving spouses. And, and the same truth applies in verse 2, that they see our respectful and pure conduct. They should see a difference in you. The world should be able to see a difference in each and every single one of you. You know, there's a phrase that I, I really appreciate. It, it goes like this. If, you know, that the world, if the world cannot tell that you're a Christian by your Facebook, then you're doing something wrong. If the world cannot tell that you're a Christian by your conduct, by what you put out there on social media, there's a great discrepancy then between that which you profess and that which you act out in real life. 
Our life should be a living testimony. It is significant, however, in our main text in Ephesians chapter 5, that through this text, husbands and wives are reminded of their duties and not their rights. They're reminded of their duties to one another, but not their rights. And in the world that we live in today, we have forsaken duty for rights. And maybe it's just the American in us, where we have so many beautiful rights enshrined uh, in our Constitution that grant us unparalleled freedoms compared to the rest of human civilization and human history. Yet, dear Christian, it is helpful to be reminded that it is not always about your rights, but more so your duties as a Christian. Your duty as a father, as a husband, to provide, to protect, to be a defender, to lift up the banner of Jesus Christ. Your duty as a wife, to lovingly submit to the arrangement that God has blessed in the family. To rear your children in the way that they should go, producing godly offspring for the glory of God and for the advancement of God's kingdom throughout the ages. We must remember that it is important also to read all that is said in this section, realizing again that it follows that which has been said in verse 21 about mutual submission and that it presupposes what is stated in Galatians 3.28 of the equality of Christ, uh, the equality in Christ of male and females. But there is still a greater thing to be learned and grasped in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. The Christian family is ordered under Christ's headship. I want you to write that in. The Christian family is ordered under Christ. Christ's headship. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says that the head of the woman is the man, the head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. There is headship and order. Notice that men are under the headship of Christ, women under the headship of the man, but Christ under the headship of the Father. There is a mutual respect and submission in the arrangement of the Godhead even. And Christ, though he submits as the God-man to the Father, does that make him any less God? By no means. Jesus Christ is equally God, shares all the attributes of the one true and triune God. He is in himself fully God. And yet, 1 Corinthians 11.3, he is in submission. He is under the headship of God the Father. Doesn't make him any less God. In the same way that when a woman submits to her husband, doesn't make her any less human, worthy of dignity, love, protection, and under the image of the Almighty God. Therefore, these are things that we are to be reminded of, to be encouraged with. That this headship and submission is ultimately out of reverence for him. Again, we, we, we understand this in, in light of verse 21 of Ephesians 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for 
Christ. But when our rights become the focus, we, I, me, become the center of the relationship. When I make it about my rights, or when you make it about your rights, who's at the center? You see, we can speak like this in regard to our political rights, because in a democracy and a republic, the people rule. And it is about the people. But in the family and in marriage, it isn't about you. It isn't about your rights. It's about Christ. It's about God. It's about the Lord. It is the Lord who should be the center of our marriages and not me and my desires. Because when you look at why 51% of marriages end up in divorce in America, most of them result in what's called irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences. Another way of saying that is essentially in the marriage, in the commitment, one party says to the other, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. You are not completing or satisfying what I thought you would be doing. So therefore, I have grounds and rights to, to dissolve the contract, to dissolve the covenant, because you didn't live up to your side, or you're just not what I thought you would be. Irreconcilable differences. Now, what's the error in that? The gross sin behind that is the sin of idolatry, the sin of me being at the center of the marriage and not Christ. Because in a Christ-centered marriage, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about Christ. It's about his glory, his kingdom, his dominion. And the family is at the heart of the dominion and rule of Christ in this world. It is through the family. It is through this beautiful uh, union of man and woman in marriage and holy matrimony that God is indeed increasing and blessing his kingdom. The family is so important, brothers and sisters. And marriage is the glue that holds mar that, that, that marriage is the, is the glue that holds families together. You see, I'm a product of divorce. My parents divorced when I was 13 years old, so I know upfront and personal the destruction that comes with divorce. You know, just recently, uh, my youngest son, uh, my oldest son, uh, he said he watched a program uh, on Disney or something, and he, and he was asking me, "Is it true that sometimes mom and daddies leave each other?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah." So he, he this concept of divorce never even occurred to him. And I said, yes, unfortunately, there are people who get married and then they leave each other. And, and he says, that makes me sad. And it should make all of us sad because it's not what God intended. God did not intend for this union to be broken by anything but death. And it is why oftentimes in our society, divorce is usually the first option instead of the last. And as soon as we're uncomfortable, as soon as, as our inconveniences uh, are... are, are interrupted, we find it just and right within ourselves to initiate the dissolvement of the covenant. And that does not honor Christ, does not honor his headship, does not honor the reverence that we are to show to him in submitting to one another in love for the reverence and glory of Christ. See, it is with the Lord at the center. 
that we can begin to see the big picture of marriage. That submission isn't about who has more rights or authority in the relationship, but rather that it is to acknowledge this truth that Christ is the authority. Christ is the authority. Not you, not me, not what I feel about my marriage, but Christ. Christ is Lord. And what has the Lord ordained? But for us, for women, for wives, to submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and husbands to love their wives. We'll get more into that in just a second. Notice what it says, though, one more time in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So there's this respect, there's this um, uh, setting up of, of headship that we see in the text. And his body, and is himself its savior. You see, if we do anything to destroy, to weaken the bond of holy matrimony of marriage, we are attacking the very heart of Christ in that marriage is a picture of Christ and his people. No less can we undo and separate Christ from his people, and that should be the same heart that we ought to have in our marriages. That divorce is not an option. It's not even to be considered amongst holy people, amongst those who believe in Christ. Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This again is a respectful, a, 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 a submission out of reverence for Christ. Just as the church submits to Christ in saying, which is, Pretty important here, folks, that the pastor or bishop or an organization is not the final authority, but Christ himself. And this is how you can recognize a true church from a false one. The one who holds fast to the word of God as the inerrant, inspired, authoritative word and practices that which is laid out in Holy Scripture, that is a true and good church. But there are churches now, even in our nation, even in our own backyard, that throw the Bible to the wind. And they say the Bible's not that authoritative. We can bend it here and there. There, there. there are things that are just out of date. For instance, this is why we can have female pastors. These are just so out of date. You know, it's just cultural. It's just, you know, we, we don't have to uh, follow everything in the Bible. Nonsense. Because at that point, who becomes the authority? Well, they do. But a true church finds its authority in Scripture, finds its submission to Christ in Holy Scripture. So this is why, again, it says, now as the church submits to Christ, the church is to submit to Christ in everything, in everything. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But now comes a, a good, strong warning in which we have to uh, understand verse 24 in light of what we're going to see in verse 25. Husbands, so now here's the word to you men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, here's your command. Love your wife. Love your wife. I'm not talking about have you know, just a nice little... Uh, uh, fuzzy feelings in your heart or, 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 or love your wife when it's convenient, when she, when she looks good, when she looks bad, when she's healthy, when she's not healthy, wherever, regardless of her circumstance, you love that woman. 
You love her so much that you'd be willing to die and lay down your life for her. You'd be willing to lay down your life for your children. It is a sacrificial, agape love to which he has called you to love your wives. And if you love your wife as Christ has commanded us, there's going to be a, a, um, a few things that you will not even dare to do. One, you will not lay your hands on her in an inappropriate way. That's very important. Men are not to domineer their wives, not to lay a hand on them to do harm to them, but they are to love and cherish that woman that God has ordained to be his own. Therefore, we should not even fathom to lay a finger on God's precious anointed. And so, brothers and sisters, we recognize that this submission is important, but, but husbands, know this. The love to which you have been called to is that with which Christ has loved us with. Humble, gentle, loving, and all, in all ways. Another thing that we must avoid to do as husbands is to not consider our wives in the decision-making process. It's easy for a man to say, well, I'm the head. What I say goes. It's my decision. No, 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 brothers and sisters. When, when the Bible says that when a man and woman come together, they become one flesh. Not that you become 100% of that flesh. It is two that become one. Therefore, decisions should be made in the context of relationship. You know, you, you do not, as a husband, have unilateral power to do bad for your, for your family. You are to lead, and you are to lead well. And this is what it means to have the mind of Christ, to submit to Christ in all things, just as the church submits to Christ, and that when we lead, we're someone worthy of leading. Because it's so often that wives will follow their husbands even to the pit. And, and husbands, that's going to fall on you. That's going to be on your shoulder. That's going to be on you on that day of judgment. So husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you don't live and lead a life in which you lead your wife into despair or into the grips of death, but rather you be the one who will be fighting for her, championing her, championing your family, even to the point of death. That's your duty. That's your job. Okay? Regardless of how, that, of, of how that takes shape and form, it is your job to slay the dragons. It's your job to be a protector. It's your job to be a provider. It's yours. It's your responsibility. Just as Christ is the one who slays the dragon for us. He's the one who comes, the victorious David, who comes and destroys the dragon of sin, will destroy the dragon of, of Satan, the devil himself, and he will present to himself a beautiful, blameless, perfect, spotless bride. You see that one of the reasons why that bride is going to be spotless is because it's Jesus who's done all the work to protect her. And so it falls on the man to be a strong protector. Are you protecting your spouse? Are you protecting your spouse, your family, your children from the influences of the world? From the machinations of the devil? From his fiery arrows? It is our job to be not only the one taking the lead in finances or in work or, or mundane things of life, but spiritually, we are to be the priests of our own home. 
We are the ones who are to be leading our family in family worship. Leading them in the word daily. Making them strong in the Lord. This is our duty. And we do so out of reverence for Christ. We see in verse 25. Again, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see the love that with, with which we are to love? Can you even begin to imagine the depths of Christ's love? The love that he has for his elect? The love that he has for his people? We can only get a foretaste, a bit of a taste of that in marriage. When you make those vows, you make the decision, I'm going to forsake all others in pursuit of loving you and making you whole and bringing forth godly offspring into this world is a foretaste of heaven. I want you to write this in there. Marriage is a model of Christ that, and uh, model of Christ and the church, or of the church, it should say, and the covenant love he has for his people. It's the church and the covenant love that he has for his people. And that's the covenant love of which we are to love our spouse. Now, again, I speak in great humility. Because I do not speak to you as one who has fully figured this all out. All you have to do is interview my wife for a couple minutes to know that to be true. I haven't figured this out perfectly. Do I make mistakes? Do I not love perfectly? Not even close. But brothers and sisters, it should be our aim to be like Christ more and more. And no greater area can we be more like Christ than in our marriage. Because there's no greater tool that God has provided for us to be like him than marriage. How? Why? How is that so? Because marriage, really, if you think about it, is about learning to love someone unconditionally who doesn't always meet the conditions. That's unconditional love. It means there's love without conditions. And yet, we all have conditions. But will you love your husband? Will you love your wife even when they fail to meet the conditions? That's agape love. You know, that's the love that Christ has for you. Do you always meet his conditions? Do you meet God's perfect law daily? Do you meet and, and, stand, and, and stand up to all the requirements that God has for us? Absolutely not. And yet he loves you. He loves you regardless. And you are his regardless. And he won't give up on you because he will not lose not even one of his sheep. That's the love that he has for you. And that's the love that he's called us to have for our spouse. It's God's love. God's love. And so brethren, sisters, love of such a covenant love, love of the same love of which you have received from the beloved, the Son of God, even Jesus our Savior, who gave himself for us. He is himself the head and the savior of his people, of his bride. Let us, let us do that and be that. Let us live in such a way that we are glorifying Christ by loving our spouse and loving our neighbors. It's the love of God. Which is why, again, he might say in verse 25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. 
Husbands, you are commanded, I want you to write that in there, to love your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Marriage, beloved, male and female, you must hear this, it isn't about you. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's the good news that God has come forward in the fullness of time, born of the virgin, to live the life that you could not live, die the death that you deserved, was raised again on the third day to glory, and has ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for our sins even now as we speak. It is the gospel that is at stake in our marriages. Learning to love someone unconditionally who does not always meet the conditions. This is what God has called you to. And marriage is a daily exercise of the gospel, of the love of God come down from heaven. And we get to partake in that and have a sweet taste of what it's going to be like to be joined together with Jesus for all eternity. Because marriage, according to the Christian doctrine, is until death do us part. We are not like the Mormon church that says that, that marriage is an eternal ordinance or covenant that extends all the way into eternity and that uh, we're going to have uh, uh, you know, spirit babies on different planets and things of that nature. That's not the Christian doctrine, but instead the Christian doctrine points that earthly marriage is an institution that God has ordained to prepare us for the heavenly institution of Christ and his bride. We are awaiting, there's an eschatological expectation that is, uh, that is uh, realized in the marriage between man and woman. And we eagerly await the appearing and manifestation from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, the blessed hope where we will be joined to him forever in unbroken praise and worship. And we'll be joined to him, we as the bride and he, the bridegroom. There's a sacred mystery at work here. There's a sacred mystery at work. Because the Bible says in verse 26 again that he might sanctify her, Christ sanctifying the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There's a washing. This is the renewal of the Holy Ghost, the regeneration that happens in every believer when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Without blemish. Here's another eschatological reality that we all need to come to grips with. Right now, you are not that, that perfect, spotless bride. You are still marked and mired by the fall. Sin still affects every single one of us. And yet, what God is accomplishing through this is the, is results in the transformation of his people. Beginning first and foremost when one is born again, receives the internal regeneration of the Spirit. He changes us. We become more like Jesus through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But then there will be a day in which we will all corporately be gathered together before the Lord. And we shall be truly in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that we will be presented to Christ holy and without blemish. Without blemish. That's what God is producing in us. That is what God is doing in us, in the people of God. The last bullet point, the secret union of marriage is meant for our 
holiness. You see, marriage is not about happiness more than it is actually about holiness. We often think in marriage that the whole purpose of marriage is for me to be happy. I found the one person who's going to make me happy for the rest of my life and we can live happily ever after. Uh, that is a fairy tale. That is a Disney Channel invention. Uh, it is not what marriage is about. Marriage is not about your happiness. That should be a byproduct of it. But it's not about your happiness. This is why, again, marriages end in divorce. I'm no longer happy. Who cares about your happiness? You know what Christ cares more about than your happiness? Your holiness. You becoming more like him. You becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what Jesus cares about. And in fact, that is what he is producing in his people. And that is what he's producing through marriage. It is the greatest tool that God has ordained for man and woman to be prepared for the life ahead in eternity. It is for you to become holy. Now, I want to say a quick word to the single. How are you preparing yourself to be led or to lead in true holiness? How are you preparing yourself to be spiritually fit to lead or be led in marriage? Now, some, especially young men in our culture, in our churches, wonder why they aren't married. Maybe they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s, and they wonder, why am I not married yet? And yet, secretly addicted to pornography. Is it any wonder? Notice what the result of marriage ought to be. Well, it will be on that great and final day, that Christ is going to be presented a wife, a bride who is spotless, who is without blemish, and the job of the husband is to wash his wife, to cleanse her under the teaching and the renewal of the word of God. And so if you are a single man and you are struggling with sexual sin and perversion, you are not ready to be a husband. You are not fit to lead. So then it's no wonder then that you're not married. God won't honor your request of marriage if you won't even be fit to lead a wife in true holiness. So therefore, consider it a grace that you aren't married. Now that's not to single out everyone who's single and say that the reason why you are single is because of that. Surely not. Surely not. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord, the Lord knows your situation and circumstances, and we're not the ones to judge that. But, beloved, know this, that if you are a single person and, and, and you are dealing with immorality of sorts, it's no wonder. Consider it a grace. Consider it a grace that he has now allowed you to ruin such a good and beautiful thing. Because such a beautiful thing as marriage can be completely tainted and even destroyed by perversions like that. But know this, that the Lord is himself preparing you and is indeed preparing his people for the marriage that all marriages point to. And that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so it, maybe God has gifted you singleness. But if you, if, if you feel like that's not your calling to be single. And if you feel like God is calling you to, to, uh, to marry, to, to have godly offspring. Consider this point. That God has called you to be holy. That God has called men to wash their wives with the washing of the word of God, just as Christ has washed us with the water of regeneration through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us so that we may become holy. 
and that our job as husbands is to present our wives holy, spotless, and blameless before Jesus through the working of the Spirit in us, and that Christ is going to accomplish this through sanctification and glorification. But this is a heavy call. It's not an easy life. Sometimes men and women jump into marriage too quickly because of they don't necessarily go with all the right expectations. And sometimes they have to learn the hard ways. I hope this doesn't upset my wife, but our first year was not an easy time. You know, most people say my first year of marriage was beautiful. Was, you know, we went to Hawaii. Uh, we were broke. We still haven't gone to the Hawaii 10 years later. Um, it, it wasn't easy. And we were young, 19 at the time, and we didn't have a lot of life experience. And, and uh, what resulted was that we almost, it, it almost didn't work out. But Christ, Christ was at the center. Christ has remained at the center. And because of that, you know, I can say 11 years. And hopefully 20 years, 30 years, 40 years until the Lord takes us home. That's the goal, is to be holy. is to find Christ in our marriages, that he be the center of it. Why? Because all marriages point to the marriage of the, sup- and the marriage supper of the Lamb. I won't take too much more time, but I want us, if we can, just to look at one more text of Scripture in Revelation chapter 19, last book of the Bible. If you're reading through God's Word, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you spoilers, uh, but it works out. Everything works out at the end. And we see in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 7, we see this glorious uh, uh, exaltation of God and rejoicing in heaven where we see in verse 7, the heavens themselves declare this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What we see at the end of history is you and I and all those who are united to Christ by faith will be joined together with him and we will indeed be glorious and spotless and we will be before our bridegroom, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be joined to him for all eternity. He is the one to whom our hearts truly belong to. And if our hearts belong to Christ, then your marriage will be blessed and your marriage and relationships will prosper. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty, he reigns and he rejoices and exalts and is glorified in the marriage arrangement that he has made for you and for me. We see ultimately this beautiful picture culminate in chapter 21 of Revelation where he says, in verse 9 and 10, we see this. Then came one of the seven angels who had, been, who had had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You are indeed the heavenly Jerusalem. You are indeed that beautiful city that comes shining down, that shining city on a hill comes down to meet his king, to meet the Savior. And then the last words of Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, 
the spirit and the bride say, that's God's spirit and the bride, you're the bride, the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the end goal for our marriages. That through our marriages, that it be such a testimony for the glory of Christ. That our singleness be such a testimony for the glory of Christ. That wherever you may be in life, may be such a testament to the glory of Christ. That we can say to the nations, come. Come and partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And come and receive this water of life without price. This is the gospel call. Marriage is so closely united to the gospel. And therefore, we must live a gospel-centric life, have a gospel-centric marriage to the glory of the Lamb. All glory be to Christ. Let me pray. Savior, our true and proper head, even the Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you asking that you'd humbly work in us to receive this word which has been proclaimed to your people. That we would take with it all of its implications, stir it into our hearts, and wait with great eagerness and anticipation thy coming from heaven on a white steed to destroy your enemies and also to redeem once and for all your, your blessed and set-apart bride. Lord Jesus, help us in this life to live lives that are holy and gratifying to you by the indwelling and the working out of our redemption through the uh, working of the Spirit. And help us, Lord God, in our marriages. Father, I pray for any marriages here that are struggling. I pray, Lord, that they would run and seek shelter in Christ that they would seek shelter for their souls and for the soul of their families in Jesus, that Jesus would be that sure anchor and hope of our redemption. Lord, we, if, if you can raise the dead, you can even raise marriages from the dead. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, if we find ourselves struggling in our marriages. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see the true call of marriage is to that of submission and holiness to the glory and reverence of your name. Lord, help us when we are weak to be strong. May you bless the marriages here, the families, the children, that they too, our children, would see godly uh, families and godly arrangements and marriages and would seek that in their lives, that we would not set a bad example for them, Lord, but, in but indeed, Lord, that they would look forward to the riches and glory that are in marriage as we live out this gospel. As we say to the nations, come, that they're not coming to something that is superficial or hypocritical, but instead something that is marked out with true love and devotion to Christ. So Lord, help us in all these things and more, that your name would be highly magnified and made great. To you belongs the glory both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.